Hi everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here again with the latest episode of the China History Podcast. And this one is dedicated to Mikey F. and all his gang up in the beautiful northern port city of Dalian. For today, we're looking at a man who came from the Emerald Isle, the nation of Ireland. And even though most of his life was spent in China, he's still remembered as a great Irishman and certainly someone who left his mark in Chinese history. Today we look at one of my personal heroes, Sir Robert Hart. In the deepest, darkest part of the maw of Jimsajai at the tip of the Kowloon Peninsula in Hong Kong, there's a street on the east side of Nathan Road. It's called Hart Avenue. It starts at Mahdi Road, right where good old Spring Dare is located, the most famous place in TST for Peking Duck. Hart Avenue then runs north for about a block before it juts to the left and then heads northwest and dumps out into Carnarvon Road. But what always made Hart Road so dang confusing was, for no reason whatsoever, there's this T intersection just before Hart Road makes its tilt to the west. And when you turn right at the T, that too is also Hart Road, and that branch dumps you off in Chatham Road. It was always so confusing to me, that area, as Hart Road was seemingly two different streets with the same name. Robert Hart was such an important person from Chinese history, and truly one of the most powerful and influential Westerners to ever live in China. If there ever was a man worthy of having two streets named after him within the bowels of Jim Sa Jai, it was most certainly Sir Robert Hart. First Baronet, CMG, KCMG, GCMG. I'm willing to take a guess that most listeners have probably never heard of Robert Hart. During my nine years in Hong Kong, I walked down Hart Avenue hundreds of times, and even I didn't know who this street was named after. So today we're going to examine the life and career of Sir Robert Hart and the role he played in China during the reigns of three Qing Dynasty emperors, Xianfeng, Tongzhi, and Guangxu. He was born February 20th, 1835, which was the period right around the time when China starts to disintegrate and the bad times that the Chinese call their century of humiliation was just starting to get underway. Hart didn't come from money and he had quite a modest upbringing. Graduated from Queen's University in Belfast in 1853 at the age of 18. He was by all means a very remarkable student and received a nomination from the British Foreign Office to serve as an interpreter in the China Consular Office. For a young Irishman who didn't come from privilege or money, there were limited prospects for him in his own land. To roll the dice and take a blind leap of faith into the unknown was an easy choice for young Hart. Robert Hart was a bit of a ladies' man, and there were stories about several cases of, how shall we say, outrages of women's modesty or something along that line back in Belfast. A career in the foreign office would surely set young Hart right proper, and so off he went, and surely he couldn't have imagined on June 4th, 1854, as his boat pulled away from the port city of Southampton that he'd remain in China for over half a century. His first assignment was in Hong Kong at the Superintendency of Trade. It was merely 12 years after the end of the First Opium War when Hart was working for the consular office there in Hong Kong. The British came in, of course, in 1842 when they won the island of Hong Kong in perpetuity as a 
clause in the most famous of the unequal treaties, the Treaty of Nanjing. Initially, it took some time to get the place organized. Customs was a total mess. The British were constantly made into baboons by the local Chinese, who, of course, had the home field advantage as far as this ongoing game of brinksmanship. Both sides always played with each other. Yeah, things weren't too terribly organized back in those days, the 1840s. By the 1850s, things started to gel, and the British by then had a much better lay o' the land as far as Hong Kong and its potential role in southern China went. When Hart arrived there in 1853, the British were confident they were going to be able to do great things with Hong Kong, which of course they did, but that's for another day and another podcast. So this is where Hart started. This is where he began to acquaint himself with the Chinese language, learn about maritime trade, and the peculiarities of the Chinese ways of carrying out trade and commerce. When he got to Hong Kong, everyone was on the take in customs, and while plenty of customs duties were collected, not everything was going to the state coffers. Hart got to see the worst of it, the corruption, the inefficiency, the way the Chinese just made monkeys of the British who always had to rely on the Chinese due to the famous British linguistic deficiencies in the local lingo. So in September 1854, Spot opens up in, where else? My own second city of Ningbo. Ningbo, for all you unfamiliar with China, is the next major town south of Shanghai. If you look at a map of China, they're practically right next to each other. Shanghai to the north and Ningbo to the south. And the Changjiang, the Yangtze River, it's right here where it dumps out into the East China Sea. You know, more than half of the people who live in Shanghai, a hundred or more years ago, probably all came from the city of Ningbo. That's why the Ningbo dialect is pretty much the same as the Shanghai dialect. Ningbo was one of the most important of the treaty ports that opened up as a result of the Opium War. And it was here where Robert Hart started to do some good things. For starters, it was during his time in Ningbo, serving as vice consul, where his language proficiency reached a point of functionality. Hart stayed in Ningbo from 1854 to 1858. And if you recall, these were some rough years, as Hong Xiuquan and his Taiping rebels were causing widespread havoc, not to mention death and destruction all over southern China. The Ningbo of Robert Hart's time was in complete shambles. On top of all the ongoing drama caused by the Taiping Rebellion, Ningbo's trade and customs situation was under attack from within, as criminal elements also vied for a piece of the action. There were still boatloads and boatloads of opium pouring into the port of Ningbo, and duties paid on the cargo were not small by any means. So you had all kinds of special interests trying to muscle in on the action. And when this happens, by the time the revenue raised on the import duty is handed to the imperial court, it was a very reduced figure indeed. Here in Ningbo, Robert Hart serves as an interpreter at the British consulate. Prior to actually arriving in Ningbo, Hart first went to Shanghai, where he met the acquaintance of another character right out of central casting. This was Horatio Nelson Lay. Like Hart, he was a young Turk, 22 years old, making a career in the 
British Foreign Service. He was based in Shanghai, and his father had served as a consul in Fujian province. At such a young age, Lei was now already a vice consul in Shanghai. Horatio Nelson Lei was truly a tragic figure. Hart ended up quite well in the end, and Lei, he died a forgotten man. Yet at one time, he was a mover and a shaker as Inspector General of China Maritime Customs, and exercised great power and influence. But whereas Hart was the model of discretion, proper Chinese etiquette, cultural sensitivities, Lei was brash, disrespectful, and was thoroughly disliked by those Chinese and Manchus who worked with him. He was a man who was his own worst enemy, and his personality flaws got the best of him. And as we'll see later, after the Manchus and Chinese had had enough of his antics and bad manners, Lei got himself booted out of China. By 1857-1858, Hart, by now, he's completely fluent in Mandarin. All the while, he is learning the ropes in Ningbo customs. The Taiping Rebellion is really starting to pick up steam. The chaos that was caused by these rebels was considerable. In addition to the disruption to the government, it was causing all kinds of grief with all those traders who were out to make an honest buck, and there was still plenty of opium trading going on. And Customs wasn't getting any of the revenue raised, and if Customs didn't get it, then the imperial treasury couldn't pay off the war indemnities. China was stuck with, well, I guess you could liken it to a credit card bill that no matter what could never be paid off, and there's nothing that a bank loves more than someone who is completely in debt up to their eyeballs but still makes the monthly minimum payments. The bank gets a nice revenue stream at a high interest rate. Well, this is sort of China's predicament, too. Not only did China have to pay back these crushing war indemnities to the foreign powers because of the Opium War, China was also, if you recall from the Qing Dynasty Part 4 and 5, making lukewarm attempts at modernizing. This meant China got even further into hock to the foreign banks to fund these railroads infrastructure projects, and military hardware. So now, due to criminal gains, the disruption caused by the Taiping Rebellion, and the general corruption that was rampant, Shanghai Customs wasn't bringing in any revenue. And it was the port of Shanghai that had always been the big cash cow for the Qing government. So not only was the government at risk of being toppled by Hong Xiuquan and the Taiping rebels, it was also going broke due to a disruption in perhaps the most important sources of revenue the imperial treasury had. And it wasn't due only to Chinese corruption. The British traders were also openly corrupt in avoiding paying duties. The British consul in Shanghai at the time was Sir Rutherford Alcock. You all remember him, giant of the opium war years. He knew if the Qing government fell, and there was chaos, or even worse, Taipings in control of things, it was the end of everything for Britain and all foreigners. The Taiping rebels were determined to rid China of all foreigners. So Alcock, he was determined to find some sort of way to whip Shanghai customs back into shape so that the revenue faucets could be turned back on again and the Qing imperial government could continue to be, you know, sort of propped up. In this way, the opium trade can continue on as before and the massive Customs duties raised on opium and other commodities would keep feeding the dying beast up in Beijing, 
In March 1858, Hart accepts a transfer to Guangzhou, known then as Canton. And it's here in Canton that young Hart, still only 23 years old, gets his first major chance to test out his diplomatic skills. Proved to be very good at this and worked out major differences between the British side under Commissioner Harry Parks and the Chinese representative. For the remainder of 1858 and early into 1859, the Taiping rebels were causing plenty of grief for everyone, and British and French forces fought them off as best they could. These were not easy times for anyone in China. Not only was China facing foreigners who were smashing and grabbing anything and everything from them, but they also had the menace of the Taiping Rebellion going on. Either one of these two problems was enough to topple the Manchu regime up in Beijing. Because of the reputation he was beginning to earn, Hart was approached by Chinese high-up officials to take the post of Deputy Commissioner of Customs in Canton. Hart's colleague, Horatio Lei, had already set the precedent and was working directly for the Chinese now. The Chinese paid well, and the opportunities were limitless for guys like Lei and Hart, who spoke the language and had experience in the bureaucracy. So by the summer of 1859, Hart started getting his paycheck from the Chinese rather than the British. He was now a British citizen working as a Chinese civil servant. Horatio Lei assisted Hart in getting the Canton Customs House in order. In the meanwhile, the Chinese were getting beaten and pushed around in the Second Opium War, also known as the Arrow War, and things were about to be made much worse for China. With the Treaty of Tianjin that followed, more treaty ports were opened up on top of those that Britain forced open after the First Opium War. Now there were too many treaty ports opened and the Qing government was scrambling to get its house in order to the extent that these treaty ports could at least start bringing in revenue into the imperial coffers. So October 1860, you have the Convention of Beijing, which essentially ratifies the Treaty of Tianjin. And this, along with the burning and looting of the Summer Palace in that same month, was a sad day indeed, and one that has provided Chinese nationalists a thousand lifetimes of vengeance to hang its hat on. March 1861, Horatio Lei was attacked and gravely injured in Shanghai. He's forced to sail back to England to take some time to recover from his injuries, and Hart is called up from Canton, where he was serving as a deputy commissioner, to fill in for Lei until he's able to resume his post. So, at the young age of 26, Robert Hart is called in as acting Inspector General of Customs. By this time, Hart had earned no small amount of grudging respect from the Chinese. His reputation for fairness and grasp of Chinese ways and thinking was well known. The brashness and unacceptable ways of Horatio Lei were not missed at all while he recovered, and Hart was like a breath of fresh air into the system. One man who had particularly noticed Hart and the ways in which he efficiently managed affairs on behalf of the Chinese was none other than Prince Gong, Gong Qin Wang, who was the younger brother of the Xianfeng Emperor. Prince Gong was the Zhou Enlai of his time, that is, the face of China to the foreign powers and the one tasked with dealing with them. The emperor 
wasn't ever going to get his hands dirty dealing with such unpleasantness as foreigners and all their ridiculous and unfair demands. He entrusted this thankless job to Prince Gong, who was only two years older than Hart. He had been apprised of Hart's career and was aware of his reputation. So in the spring of 1861, Hart travels for the first time to Beijing and meets first with Prince Gong's right-hand man, Wen Xiang. Let's get a point of reference first. Uh, Queen Victoria, she's been on the throne for 24 years now, and this is the time of the Civil War in the U.S., and there were two presidents, Lincoln and Davis. Hart uses this opportunity to explain to Wen Xiang and also to Prince Gong personally that the maritime customs system of the Qing dynasty was in total shambles and everyone was on the take. And he explained to them how to reform the whole operation. And it was a real eye-opener to them when Hart showed them how much revenue could be raised if customs were run better. So successful was this meeting that they asked Hart to actually move in to the new quarters at the Zongliyamen, China's version of the foreign office. Prince Gong was in charge of the Yamen and set it up in 1861 following the Convention of Beijing. The way it worked, as far as etiquette at the Imperial Palace, it would be simply impossible to have these dirty, smelly, impolite foreigners in the presence of the Xianfeng Emperor or any Chinese sovereign. So Prince Gong came up with this idea to create this Chinese version of Foggy Bottom, and from 1861 until it was replaced 30 years later, the Zongli Yamen was the office where foreigners had to go to deal with their endless problems and demands. The stories that have been passed down to us in letters and early histories, giving accounts about the frustrations in dealing with the Zongli Yamen, make great reading. We'll focus in on this office in another podcast. August 1861, the Xianfeng Emperor dies, and then he's replaced by his son, the Tongzhi Emperor. And you all vividly recall, no doubt, from China History Podcast, Episode 40, Qing Dynasty, Part 6, this new emperor's mother was none other than the Empress Dowager, Cixi, who pretty much ran China from here on out until her death in 1908. So, we're in this exciting time now. The Qing Chao Monian, the final years of the Qing Dynasty. And Sir Robert Hart, like Jack Nicholson had at the Laker Games, He's got floor seats to this whole period. If you recall, there was a very bloody power struggle going on following the emperor's death, and this is where Cixi earned her reputation as no slouch. And as for Robert Hart, he made good on his words and spent the next year traveling tirelessly along the coast and inland. One by one, new ports started to open up. And this was no small accomplishment. Aside from having to adequately staff these outposts and enforce customs regulations and collect duties, they had to face the menace of the Taiping Rebellion that still hadn't run out of gas yet. In fact, Shanghai now was under attack, and the Qing army, being what it was and all, mercenaries were hired to fight back against the Taipings. Among these, of course, were the American Frederick Townsend Ward and the very British General Charles Chinese Gordon. In addition to these soldiers of fortune, Hart played a role in convincing the Manchu rulers to take a chance 
and allow armies to be raised under Han Chinese command. This had always been a taboo subject, for obvious reasons, but desperate times required desperate measures, and this is how Tsung Guofan and later Li Hongzhang made their entry onto the world stage. Then, in September 1863, came one of the darker incidents in Hart's otherwise remarkable life. This was the so-called Lei Osborne Flotilla, China's attempt to instantly pull a navy out of its hat. Hart had convinced Prince Gong, who had convinced the imperial court, that to finally crush the Taiping rebels in their stronghold of Nanjing, they needed a navy to control the rivers and, along with the army, move in and put an end to Hong Xiuquan and all his kin and squash this movement that had already cost the lives of tens of millions. This was an ill-fated affair. You recall Horatio Nelson Lay. He's in London recuperating still from his wounds suffered in Shanghai. Hart thought it only natural to work through his superior, Lay, to get the job done. The Qing Imperial Treasury had granted a large sum of money to raise a fleet of war vessels from England. To make a long story short, by the time September 1863 rolled around and the ships sailed into Shanghai, there was a whole political mess, and Robert Hart cursed the day he asked Lay to get involved. The way Hart had worked the deal, it was what it was. The imperial government was getting seven or eight vessels that would be commanded by Chinese officers. Lay totally ignored Hart's instructions. And now, here it was, the Taiping rebels are still threatening the Yangtze Delta, and Captain Osborne, who was in charge of the flotilla, he was ranting that he only took orders from the Tongzhi Emperor, who, uh, number one, was only seven years old, and two, was not the man in charge of this department. He was the president, so to speak. This was a job, you know, dealing with Osborne and the flotilla. This was a job for, like, a senior vice president or a director. There was a lot of arguing about this point and who was in charge and who worked for who. And Lay was so out of line and disrespectful. And after breaking every possible unwritten rule about working with the Chinese in general and the imperial court in particular, Prince Gong's people told him and Osborne to stuff it. But we're jumping ahead. The whole idea of buying a small navy owned, operated, and commanded by Chinese naval officers originally came from Hart, and he was entrusted by the imperial court, which meant the Empress Dowager most of all, to do this deal for them. He picked the wrong guy in Horatio Lay and paid for it dearly in loss of face. By November 1863, the ships sailed back to England and the deal went south. China lost money on the deal, but they made a point about not wanting to be pushed around. And right after that, Lei was officially fired from the Zhongli Yamen as Inspector General of China Maritime Customs, and this post then went to Robert Hart, still the acting IG all this time. Now he was the IG, the Zhongshui Wu Si. Once Hart officially took over, he was allowed to freely put his stamp on any aspect of the custom service he saw fit. Whatever Lay had instituted, if Hart saw fit to abolish it or institute new policies, he did it. Hart's initial genius was in creating 
in instituting an entire centralized customs service with its nerve center in Beijing. In addition to cleaning up after Lei, Hart faced a setback when in December 1863, the Taiping rebels, still not finished yet, took the city of Ningbo, and with that, the port of Ningbo as well. March 1864 comes the famous incident between Charles Chinese Gordon and Li Hongzhang. Gordon commanded the ever-victorious army, who was ultimately triumphant over the Taipings. When Suzhou fell, General Gordon had worked out an elaborate surrender, whereby certain Taiping leaders would be able to keep their lives. But when they surrendered, Li Hongzhang, who was also in on the battle, executed these leaders on sight, and this forced an ugly confrontation between Li Hongzhang and Chinese Gordon. This was tantamount to Britain versus China. When word reached Prince Gong about the storm brewing, he called Hart and asked him to go save the day. And that's what he did. He went down there and met with both sides and worked out a compromise and arrangement whereby nobody lost face, everybody's dignity was preserved and intact, Then Li Hongzhang's army joined forces with Gordon's ever-victorious army, and along with Sun Guofan's army, they went on to finish off the Taipings a few months later. This was only one of the more famous examples of where Hart was called upon to manage a sensitive affair for the Chinese or for the British. For Hart, it was more than just being fluent in the language. Horatio Nelson Lay spoke fluent Mandarin as well, but he didn't have the other qualities that were equally as important. Hart was truly the model of discretion and earned respect from both Manchu and Chinese and Westerner alike. He walked this very fine line all the time. He was a Westerner, although of Irish descent, the Chinese still saw him as British. Hart built up his reputation over the long period of his career. Although Chinese had their suspicions, time and again, Hart proved he could get their point across and use his various powers, methods, and ways to influence opinions and affect policy. The Westerners, they didn't know what to make of Robert Hart either. Time and again, he was the go-to guy for all manners of diplomatic crises. He spoke fluent Mandarin, seemed to know all the customs, and was a master of Chinese etiquette. He took his substantial paycheck from the Manchu Qing government and seemed to be on first-name terms with the entire power structure. Time and again, he advised men, companies, leaders, protégés, and all manners of people who came to him or whose life fell within his orbit. They looked at Hart as this guy who had a foot in two boats, and I guess he was trusted, but no one was ever sure where he stood. I guess he stood on the side of common sense and what was best for both sides. A word about how Hart ran the China Maritime Customs Service. It was said he ran it like an autocrat. His word was supreme and could only be overruled by the emperor himself, which naturally it never came to that. Without Hart's China Maritime Customs Service, the entire treaty port system that was so critical to the survival of the dynasty would simply grind to a halt. Hart built the customs service through his own organizational genius, his grit and his determination and his sheer industry 
in how he drove himself. I mean, he was a model for everyone, at his desk early and working late into the night. His desk, by the way, was this standing desk. That is, he didn't sit down behind a traditional desk. He stood at his desk, and it was built this way. By employing Hart directly, not only did the imperial government obtain a mechanism that generated 20 to 30% of all tax revenues, since the operation was so well run and the revenue generated so great and could be borrowed against, China was able to obtain financing for all the modernizing that was all the rage again. Not only did Hart's office provide the imperial government with a huge source of revenue, he also compiled massive amounts of data and statistics about local conditions wherever his agents went. So Hart also brought this very important benefit to the government. Little by little, Hart grew the service. And as trade grew, so more ports opened up and more revenue poured into the coffers of the Qing treasury. And just as fast as it came in, it went right out to pay war indemnities, still not paid off yet from the First and Second Opium Wars. Then you had the Sino-Japanese War, more war indemnities piled on. Then the Boxer Rebellion, even more. By then, the customs empire that Hart ruled over, like Caesar, merely served to ensure that the duties collected at the ports ultimately made their way to the coffers of Great Britain, France, the U.S., Germany, Japan. But it was a magnificent system. And Hart personally interviewed all candidates and micromanaged the hiring of agents to work all these customs houses and ports all over China. He knew how to spot talent, and he knew the nature of men and how the Chinese were, and to avoid any possibility of his employees falling prey to the temptations of bribes, he moved them around from one port to another. In this way, no Chinese businessman was going to be able to cultivate a relationship with these customs agents. After all the money or gifts, benefits that might be passed to these customs people, a businessman in Nanjing, for example, he'd never know if this guy was going to move to Hankou tomorrow and all his investment in buying him off would come to nothing. Hart knew only too well how this whole scam worked and what to expect. So he moved his people around a lot and this worked great. Hart wasn't all good. He clearly favored Westerners over Chinese, and all the most important jobs went to Westerners, and of the Westerners, the British were naturally favored. But this wasn't in all cases. There were also a good number of German, Japanese, French, and Americans who also worked for Hart at Customs. And because Hart and almost everyone working for him spoke Mandarin, there was no need for any compradors or Chinese middlemen to speak on their behalf. The custom service that Hart built was truly what it was, a well-run central government office that efficiently managed ports throughout China along the coasts and rivers. The young men he selected were trained well and performed brilliantly, and the service did the job it was supposed to do. It managed the gush of revenue that flowed in due to the explosion of China trade and the Qing government just couldn't have been more thankful. Robert Hart, for most of his years there, was called the most powerful Westerner in China. He was certainly the most influential. With power, of course, comes influence. But Hart's power on the outside rested on his role as Inspector General for China Maritime Customs. 
the IG. That's all he was. That was his title, and he worked directly for the Zhongli Yamen, which reported directly to the Qing imperial court. And because he was the head of this otherwise benign and innocuous department of the government, he had access to the highest officials in the Grand Council and knew all these people personally and had their ears and had time and again proved his usefulness and resourcefulness to them. You know what they called him? The Chinese, and especially the Manchu rulers, they affectionately called him Our Heart. They were lucky to have found him, for not only did he manage this operation for them better than they could have done it themselves, he was honest, discreet to a T, spoke their language fluently, and knew the etiquette and culture as well as any Chinese, and he had this sense of fairness about him and what was right. Hart wasn't one of the Chinese, well, neither were the Manchus for that matter, but let's just say the Chinese, even though he was our heart, they still didn't fully trust him as one of their own, and neither did the Westerners. And probably this worked to his advantage as he played his greatest roles in history, behind the scenes, locked away with men, Chinese and European, whose names we all read in all these China history books and names that have been mentioned before in these China history podcasts. In many of these times, especially in the 1850s and early 60s, Hart was merely an interpreter included in the discussions for his language skills. But of everyone assembled in the room to discuss whatever the issue or crisis was, it was only Hart who keenly understood both sides and was able to use his ways to guide the discussions and bring matters to a conclusion that was almost always best for all sides and the least likely decision to cause an all-out meltdown. This is what he did over and over, all throughout the Taiping Rebellion, Second Opium War, and every time there was a crisis or a difficult treaty, time and again, Hart was sucked into the role as intermediary between his Chinese employers and his British compatriots. That he truly wanted to help China was pretty clear. His record spoke for itself, and he clearly wasn't in it for the money. Had Hart chosen a career path in commerce instead of public service, I'm sure he could have been a Taipan as great as Jardine or Dent or Swire, especially during the self-strengthening years, the second half of the 19th century. Hart felt that this whole customs thing he was doing, if it were done right, it could serve as a model for all China to follow in other ways. He saw what the Western powers were doing to China. He didn't have to read the history books. He witnessed the history. He wasn't a fly on the wall. He was in the room, probably leading the conversation, using his ability to understand both worlds, to try and steer the discourse to the most palatable conclusion. So Hart... He had a lot of high hopes about what his customs service could do for China as a model to follow. Well, the Taiping Rebellion ended in 1864, and it took a long time after that, like it does with every war, to sort of mop up the last remnants. And then one day it's normal again, and everyone who survived the long period of not only the Taiping, but don't forget the Nian Rebellion was also going on up in the north. That didn't end till four years after the conclusion of the Taiping Rebellion. And you remember, in the end, it was the forces led by Li Hongchang and Zhuo Zongtang who finally finished off the Nian and General Zhuo, 
Of course, you remember him as the namesake for everyone's favorite dish at Panda Express, General Tso's chicken. Well, let's see. Between 1843 and 1868, China had a nasty 25 years. Hart had been on the scene since 1853. The 1870s and 1880s were calm compared to all the action that China saw during that tumultuous quarter century. But then came the Sino-Japanese War, 1894-1895, and then the Boxer Rebellion, 1899-1901. So about this time, whatever hopes Robert Hart had about playing a role in bringing China to its former greatness and out from under the boot of the foreign powers were dashed. Hart lost everything during the Boxer Rebellion. He was there in 1900 with everyone else during the siege of the legation quarter that lasted 55 days and immortalized in the Charlton Heston film, 55 Days to Peking. It's funny, Hart had predicted the Boxer Rebellion years before it happened. In so many words, he had been preaching to anyone of influence that if the Western powers kept poking that panda in the eye with that stick, One of these days, he was going to rip that arm off of yours. I mean, he didn't put it like that, but Hart had warned of this kind of violent reaction. And it hardly surprised him when word about all the atrocities committed by the boxers made its way to Beijing. Hart's house was burned down by the boxers, and all his papers that he had not managed to secure elsewhere, all his books, works of art, and mementos and memories that he'd accumulated over the 47 years he had lived in China up to that time. Everything was lost, destroyed by the boxers during that terrible time in the summer of 1900. Hart was badly affected by this naturally, but he survived. Now, and for all these years, starting in the 1880s, Hart's residence in Beijing, given to him by the Qing government in 1879, was the center of the foreign community and all expat life in Beijing. He kept up a grand residence with gardens and a 20-piece brass band that he himself both assembled and led. They were a staple at all his garden affairs. Hart was a musician himself and was known to relax by playing the violin. In looking back on his career, in 1904, Hart wrote, I have kept things together, formed the service, broadened its base, hardened its foundations, and made a fine position for any man to climb higher from, and I ought to let go. I am enjoying all the position yields, power, patronage, pay, etc., and I am its slave, the hardest worked and the least free. When the time came for Robert Hart to return to his home in 1908, he was 73 years old, 55 of those years had been spent in China. During all those years, he only went home twice. First in 1866 to marry an Irish woman, and again in 1878 as president of the Chinese government's commission to the Paris exhibition. And he didn't remain in Europe or go home for very long at all. Robert Hart was knighted in 1882 by Queen Victoria. In his Dedication to his book, the author Stanley Bell said, For nearly 50 years, he demonstrated that in the middle of the most subtle temptations of an Eastern court, a Christian Ulsterman 
can uphold Christian principles and maintain a reputation for honesty and organize a department whose name became the guarantee for every foreign loan to China. The magazine Vanity Fair once wrote of Hart, He is an integral part of China, and every book that is written of the empire includes frequent allusions to him, while all of them put together give a less than adequate idea of his greatness, his abilities, his ways, and his resources. He is certainly the most powerful man in China, and yet he is quite unknown at home. When he left China, the customs service that he inherited from Horatio Nelson Lay employed 17,700 Chinese and 1,468 foreigners from 24 nations. Hart said of the service he ran, The service which I direct is called the Customs Service, but its scope is wide and its aim is to do good work for China in every direction. He did a lot of good work during his half-century in China. In all of the history books, he doesn't figure as prominently as others, but his role was most often behind the scenes. Therefore, it's hard to gauge what Hart's true impact was on China and China's relations with Great Britain, France, and the other powers of this treaty port era. Well, we're running a little late. And as I kept digging on the internet, more and more interesting stuff continued to pop up. And the more I read, the more fascinating his life became. If you're a modern-day China scholar, like, say, Jeremiah Jenny of GraniteStudio.org, or else someone very familiar with the late Qing period. Sir Robert Hart is perhaps the most famous historical personage of modern China that you never heard of. If today's episode piqued your interest at all, let me give you a few places to go if you want to learn more. First of all, for the backbone of this episode, I relied on Jonathan Spence's great book, To Change China. It's about Western advisors in China. If you go on Google Books, oh man, I mean, you have enough Robert Hart to last you for a while. You have his journals from 1854 to 1866. There are his letters to various people and to his representative in London all those years, Joseph Duncan Campbell. There are also books written by Hart, uh, one of them, Essays on the China Question, which he published in 1901. When I read parts of it, they were so relevant, even today, on both sides, on the China side and the British side, at the highest levels, people had admitted they should have listened to him. So Google Books is really a treasure trove for things like his journals, letters, and other scholarly works. Books.google.com and go query uh, Robert Hart. You can thank me later. When I initially started poking around and started to consider the topic for this week, I chanced on a couple of novels written by a man named Lloyd Lofthouse. He's a former Vietnam vet, Marine, lived a pretty interesting life, and he's married to the famous author An Chi Minh, who wrote Red Azalea, among other accomplishments. I didn't mention that uh, Robert Hart, during his early years of service, during the Canton and Ning Boy years, before he was married, he had a concubine with whom he had three children. Lloyd Lofthouse's two books, My Splendid Concubine and Our Heart, both tell the entire story. They're both not very long. I ordered them on Amazon on a Saturday, and late in the afternoon on Monday, they were already dropped off at my office. 
I read them both in two days. They're historical novels, which means fiction based on historical fact. However you want to look at it, if you're like me, any good read that successfully brings the historical person to life is a real pleasure. So, I practically left this entire story out of my episode today. If you want to read it, uh, the author is Lloyd, L-O-F-T-H-O-U-S-E, Lloyd Lofthouse. Well, here's the deal. This episode today is an extra long one because tomorrow I am on the afternoon United flight to Shanghai. Going to be holed up there a couple of days and, of course, the obligatory two days at the head office in Ningbo, that city that played such a large role in Robert Hart's life. I wonder what he'd think of today if he saw how developed Ningbo had become and he could see the scope of Beilun Port there. You know, on the Bund in Shanghai, there's a big statue of the former mayor and all-around party and national hero, Chen Yi. Before Chen Yi graced that sacred space right on the Bund, it used to be occupied by a statue of Sir Robert Hart. Well, he left China for good in 1908. He left from the port of Tianjin, and his 20-piece Chinese brass band sent him off, as did a multitude of well-wishers, and that's it. He left, and of course, he knew he would never return. If you're 70, 80 years old today, of course, and if you're up to it, you just hop on a plane and you could fly to Beijing. But in 1908, at Hart's age, he knew this was it. Just like that, his boat sailed off, and he returned to British society and, of course, became very prominent in Belfast. He died 100 years ago, almost to this day, on September 20th, 1911. He only lived on for three more years after he left China. Well, Sir Robert Hart, everyone, a great Briton, a great Irishman, a great public servant and friend to China. You know, the Red Guards put him on trial posthumously during the Cultural Revolution. Anyways, just Google or Baidu Robert Hart, and you'll find there's a lot out there. I regret to inform you that due to this trip I'm leaving on tomorrow, there will be no time for a China History Podcast episode next week. So this rather extended episode today will have to last you for two weeks. I'll be back on Saturday the 24th and then back to normal. This is Laszlo Montgomery, your humblest of narrators, coming to you from Claremont, California. Today, by the way, is Joipa. 918, the date of the Mukden incident that Japan used as the pretext to invade China. Anyways, I won't see you next week, but we'll see you next time, I hope, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Take care, all.